Hey everyone, my name's Brayden, and you're listening to A Questioning Faith, a podcast crafted to allow us all to ask hard questions about what we believe and how our beliefs shape us. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Remember to like and subscribe to all of our social media channels. The links will be in the show notes. Welcome to the sixth episode of A Questioning Faith. In episode five, we were visiting with author John Thomas Fuller and Braden and Liz discussing who is Jesus. And today we're going to be discussing, well, how can I know that Jesus is real? And we'll begin with a segue with John telling us, who, giving us the opportunity to experience who Jesus was and is so that we might have a better way uh, or foundation of discussing how we can know Jesus is with us. So John, earlier you were sharing some thoughts on Jesus. Would you share those with us again, please? There were several things from our conversation last week that came to my mind about who Jesus the man was. And one of the things that is very important in looking at his relationship with, let's say, Orthodox Judaism of the time, he would have been considered Amhaaretz, or to put it nicely, a country bumpkin. He was unschooled. Uh, the word has the derogatory connotations of being uncouth, perhaps, not just uneducated. And the treatment of, let's say, uh, Peter at the house of, or the at the courtyard in the house of Pilate, or the uh, place where Jesus was, shall we say, tried, um, might be somewhat of an indication. The Talmud has a much greater kind of indication of the relationship, but Amhaaretz people were not um, respectable. They would not have been, they were not considered, shall we say, politically Jews. And there's a distinction between the Judahites who come from Judea and Galileans, even though they were, Jesus' family were descended from David. The area where Jesus grew up had been settled in centuries prior to his incarnation by people who took prophecy very seriously. And they actually named the community after, let's say, prophetic names of Messiah in the prophets. One of them is the branch, which is where we get our word Nazareth. And some people have there has been a lot of ink spilled on whether we should understand Jesus as the Nazari, meaning a Nazarite, meaning a Nazarite vow and a renunciant, or a Nazarene, meaning from Nazareth. But both of those words ultimately descend from a similar root, if I'm not mistaken, meaning 
it has a separate meaning, but it was used by Isaiah to mean the branch. So the branch prophecies were known, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before the city was even built. Another city in the area was named Star, and of course, it is a similar prophecy. Um, his family were many people, and after the crucifixion, and because of the kind of persecutions of the Romans, and of course, because of the political division that arose between, shall we say, the Messianic Jews of the time and the Orthodox Jews, and then ultimately the um, Pharisaic Jews, all being different sects, the Despocini, who were the family members of Jesus, fled. The, there are many mentions, though, of the Despocini, and we know who these people were. It was not just John the Baptist who was his relative. There were many people known throughout history and recorded as such, and some of them actually took positions in, of authority in the incipient church. Uh, one of the words that Jesus was known by is halui, and it means the hanged man, but it is a curse. Jesus was a curse in Judaism, and that is really appalling to me. Um, some of the, let's say, more trivial things. Jesus suffered anxiety the way all of us suffer anxiety. He had a human body and human bodies are prone to these things. He wore scented perfumes, whether essential oils or whether scented oils, and he had garlic breath. <laughs> he was fully human, absolutely fully human, right? It's very important to remember. He didn't carry a toothbrush in that robe? Of course he carried a toothbrush. <laughs> Who's your savior? He has garlic breath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, John, thank you for reminding us of that, that the person that we are trying to get to know experiences everything that we experience. Mm -hmm. That anxiety that John talks about, he isn't just making that up. Mm -hmm. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus knows he's going to be arrested at any time, he is sweating in a way that looks like sweating blood. That's a powerful example of the anxiety, you know, desperate anxiety. Father, take this cup from me. I can't do this. And we have multiple examples of him being perfumed by people. So yeah, of course he did. And yeah, thank you for sharing that life then is not you didn't say this, but I, I want to emphasize that the people that we experience when we read the Bible are not country bumpkins. They are very intelligent. They are just like us. There's no difference other than we have air conditioning. Yeah. <laughs> That's all. Maybe more comfortable clothes. Yeah. So their experiences, I, I love the Bible because it 
helps us to see what life is like through the lens of other people and how their experiences 2,000 or 3,000 years ago, the anxieties they felt, the fear they felt, the hope, the joy, the happiness, the emotions they felt, all the same exact emotions we feel. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is just one of those people, except he also had an absolutely, let's say, perfect relationship with God. And it's such an intense and perfect relationship with God that he says, if you see me, you have seen God. Ah, how do we wrap our minds around that is part of the conversation today. And I think the best way to do it is to share stories. How do we, how do we know that Jesus is with us? How do we know that Jesus is real? Well, John, you've given us a book full of stories, and we'll explore some of those today. Braden and Liz have stories, and I'm going to begin with why I'm here in Sioux City. And I've shared this, I think I shared this in a sermon. I can't remember. I don't remember my sermons, but a day or two after I give them. <laughs> so I'll share it today with our podcast audience and begin with Chapter 6 of John's Gospel, and talk about a word that I think is terribly misinterpreted or poorly interpreted all throughout John's Gospel, and that word is pistoio. <laughs> can mean to believe, but equally it means to trust. And I don't think that Jesus was saying, if you simply believe in me, then you will experience the abundant life I offer. Jesus, at the beginning of John's gospel and all of the gospels, invites people to follow him, to come live life with him so that they might trust him. So as he's talking to groups of people in the sixth chapter, they ask him, what must we do to perform the works of God, to do the will of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you trust in him whom God has sent. So they said to him, what sign are you going to give us then, so that we may see it and trust you? I think the entire story of the Gospels is that a sign isn't going to work. A miracle won't work because a couple of years go by, maybe a couple of weeks go by. And we wonder if that miracle really happened. Right. We're not going to believe until that miracle happens. I, I just, you got to do this one more thing and, and then, and then maybe, maybe I'll believe. Well, the first, right. the first thing they said was give me the proof. Yeah. And that is the perfect example of what I mean by the people then are the same people we run into now. Yeah. I'll only believe in God. If I see a miracle, I'm not going to believe what you say. That's nonsense. I'd be a fool to believe what you're telling me. Well, okay, but then listen to my story and, and see what you think of my story. Mm -hmm. So here's my story. I had fallen out of, actually, I never was in favor with the Arkansas Methodist Church. I was an outsider from the beginning. I was very vocal in my opinions. I was not a rule follower. Still, I'm not a rule, rule follower. Yay. <laughs> and it's life-giving and fulfilling, but it causes me tremendous stress and anxiety. And <laughs> yep. 
Preach it. And I had reached the point after six years of banging my head against the powers that be in the Arkansas conference that I realized they didn't want me and they were never going to give me a decent appointment. They were never going to allow me to lead a church where there was potential. In fact, they offered me an absolutely ridiculously horrible minuscule appointment that the first, the, the district superintendent who called me knew it was so bad that his voice was quivering in anxiety. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I said, you know what, this is not for me. And for a couple of years, one of my best friends who was a member of the Great Plains Conference had been telling me how much she loved this conference. And that if I ever felt like a change, reach out to the bishop and see what might happen. So this was exactly, the reason I'm telling this story is because it was a year ago. Right about exactly this time, a year ago, at the end of March, and the appointment season in the Methodist Church, we are itinerant, which means that we are appointed to churches, and that can happen anytime from usually April through March. I'm sorry, through January through, through March. By the time you get to April, all the appointments have been made. So I reached out to the bishop. We got permission from my bishop. That's how it works. You have to ask your bishop for permission to move. Then you reach out to the other bishop. And the bishop's assistant got back to me and said, sure, we'd like to throw your name in the pool, but realize that the appointment season is a few weeks from being over and the odds of you getting an appointment are slim and none. And we invite you to reapply in August if you don't get an appointment. So I said, okay and began to think about what I might do because I was really ready to be done with the Arkansas Conference. And I'm a coach. I've coached, uh, I guess, like 300, 300 hours of coaching at that time, uh, 100 people or more in three years, life coaching, spiritual coaching, uh, job coaching. And one of my best friends is also a therapist and coach. So we began talking about starting our own business. And we were ready to pull the trigger. We were talking about website design and the vision and mission for what we wanted to accomplish. And I got a call or I got an email from the Great Plains Conference that said, sorry, but we've filled all the appointments and there's not a place here for you. Ah, all right. So now I guess I really go hard after starting my own consulting business or coaching business. And as I was walking to the church that I was serving that morning, there were two cars parked right in front. Now this is COVID time and the streets were pretty empty. People were really panicking at that time. And as we drove around Northwest Arkansas, it really was like a ghost town because Walmart had shut down. 25,000 people that would come into town every day were working from home. Our church was shut. And as I walk up to the front of the church, there's two cars parked in the front. I thought, that's weird because all the restaurants are closed. And I mean, it's nothing to do downtown. And as I walk up, I see one of the license plates from Kansas. And I walk up to the next car and it's got a Nebraska license plate. Kansas, Nebraska, the Great Plains Conference states. I'd never seen a Nebraska license plate in Arkansas. <laughs> so I'm like, is, is Jesus talking to me? And I thought, well, th that's a great thanks for the sign, but I've already been told that I won't be going there. And over the next week, I 
just went into this downward spiral of depression and frustration and got up one Monday morning and began to type a resignation letter to the bishop. And as I'm typing the letter, I get a text. And it's from an old friend of mine that I hadn't talked to in years. We used to go to church with them when we first went to Arkansas. And his name's Dave, Dave Smith. And his wife, Daphne, and Brenda are pretty good friends. And they had seen each other uh, out in town prior to everything shutting down. Like the last thing to shut down was uh, a wine bar. And Brenda and Daphne were sitting outside enjoying a glass of wine because they just run into each other when they were downtown. They said, oh, let's grab a glass of wine. And Dave said, Daphne was telling me about how much she enjoyed visiting with Brenda. And I just wanted to know if you'd like me to send you daily text messages and prayers. I said, sure, Dave, that'd be great. So like a minute later, my text dings again. And it's a quote from Lamentations. And I thought, what have I gotten myself into with Dave? The very first thing he does is send me Lamentations. I mean, it's one of the books in the Bible that nobody reads because it's, <laughs> it's so sad. <laughs> Great. So Dave's going to light up my life this morning with Lamentations. So this comes from the third chapter. Lamentations is only it's a little five-chapter five book. And it's mostly lament and pain and suffering and god why did you let this happen to me except there's this little jewel right in the center dead center of the story the lord is good who wait for them this is verse 25 of chapter 3 the lord is good to those who wait for him to the soul that seeks him it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the lord <laughs> so i deleted my letter and <laughs> I decided, okay, I'll wait. That was Monday. Tuesday afternoon, I get another text message, and it's from a district superintendent in the Great Plains Conference saying, do you have time to talk? Can I call you? And I text right back, yes. My phone rings immediately. And it was Chad Engelmeyer, and he said, I've got a, an appointment for you. Now, before you say no, before you say no, please listen to me tell you all the way through. It's three churches. And he describes the churches, and it's in Sioux City, Nebraska, in South Sioux City, Nebraska. Well, Brenda and I had been hoping, praying, that if we got an appointment, the Great Plains Conference, Kansas and Nebraska are big states. And if we got appointed out west, well, I'm pretty progressive. And I knew I wouldn't be much of a fit for the ultra-conservative churches out west. And we'd be forever away from my kids. So we were praying, you know, somewhere on the eastern side of the conference. Kansas City would be really nice, God. <laughs> it's, it's pretty nice there. Omaha wouldn't be bad either. And South, so I look at a map. I had no idea where South Sioux City was. It's as far east as you can possibly get in Nebraska. It's a couple of hours from Brenda's family in Cedar Rapids. And it was about two and a half hours from our son who was going to college in Des Moines. And it was just a gift. And the churches are small and they need a lot of help. But man, what, how many churches aren't in the position where they need a lot of help? And 
I've met so many incredible people. Braden and Liz, you guys are a gift to me, a God-given <laughs> gift. And, uh, and so that's, how do I know that Jesus orchestrated that? Well, I don't know that Jesus personally did, but Jesus said, if you follow me, if you discipline your life in the way that I ask you to live, you will experience the life that is truly life. You'll experience the abundance of life. You will experience me and, and God and I will come and make our homes in you. So when I experience the presence of God, Jesus has said, that's me. I've come to make my home in you. So that is, that is one of the many stories I have of, of Jesus who has come to make his home in me, inspiring me and guiding me. And as it, it's also a, an example of what God does with <laughs> what God does to us. How, how God asks us to follow often is by sending us to places we don't necessarily want to go. As Braden and Liz and I have talked about a number of times, Sioux City, the airport code here is SUX. And it's kind of a dirty blue collar town. And there are lots of hats in the gift stores here that, uh, that make fun of the fact that Sioux City sucks. Mm -hmm. And you have to really look for the gems here some days. And I feel like Abraham, this is, you know, this story is a theme that runs throughout the Bible. God asks people to go, to get up and go. And in the very beginning, God asks Abraham to leave Babylon to go to the land of the Chaldeans. And with that, Abraham's 80 years old and he, he lives in this incredibly lush, vibrant valley community with three rivers that feed it. And everything grows there. It's the most beautiful place anybody could probably ever wanna live. And God says, Abraham, you, your entire family. And as John said, Jesus's family, we, he didn't just have brothers. He had first cousins, second cousins, third, 18th cousins, right? The entire community, his family. That's what Abraham was being asked to leave at 80 years of age, knowing that he would never see his family again. And he got up and went. And that is also how I know that God is in my life. Because when God has asked me to get up and go and I've gone, I've experienced some really powerful gifts. And John, you have a, a story of that and that we'll talk about in a little bit, but maybe Liz and Braden, if you would share some stories of how you know Jesus is active in your life. Um, one of the ways that I've experienced Jesus is I guess through one of an, an Abraham type moment of my own. Um, in my early 20s, I was asked to go be a preacher and pastor for a, a small congregation out in the, in the countries in the, in the country churches in Nebraska. And uh, the job came with a parsonage, a whole house. And I was in my early 20s. I didn't have a whole house worth of stuff. I had and a dog. And it did come with a dog. The, the house came with a dog. Um, <laughs> I had a bed and a dresser and a couch. And that was it. Um, 
and I was living in Grand Island at the time with a pastor friend of mine. Um, and I was kind of volunteering with his church. Um, and they had a little sending off celebration for me. And the and I didn't really know anything about it, but the congregation was basically asked to just give whatever they wanted because I was going to be moving into a house that I had next to nothing for. Um, didn't have any kitchen wares, no like nothing. And so in January of 2009, I think it was, I moved to Trumbull, Nebraska into a house and I moved in with my couch and my bed and my dresser and the other things that everybody else had generously given me. With like the dog. With the dog running around trying to get to know who I was. Um, I unpacked my kitchen. And when I got done unpacking my kitchen, I kind of looked around and I realized, holy cow, my cupboards have plates in them and cups and bowls and there are pots and pans for me to cook in and there's food in my pantry and in my fridge that I didn't have a day ago. And in that moment, I was, I was just overcome and I, I broke down in tears, just like, holy cow, this group of people in this church that I've been a part of for not super long. I hadn't lived, lived with my friend for very long. It was maybe six months and they just poured and poured and poured and gave and gave. And, and then at this new congregation that I went to serve had members of the trustees walk in the, the door to introduce themselves and they said oh you don't have very much in here well I've got an extra recliner and I've got a kitchen table set and four chairs that here you go here you go here you go filled up the rest of the house and made it my home for the next nine months so how do I how do I know Jesus is real how have I experienced Jesus through these people that I don't know really they don't know me. They don't, they haven't, I haven't had time to share the stories that actually let people know the deeper cracks and crevices of me. And yet here they are just filling up my house so that it is my home. And it's just amazing to me sometimes the way that, that, that set me up for the next nine months to do the thing that I didn't know if I was prepared to do. I didn't know if I was ready to stand up and preach every week. I didn't know if I was going to have something to say, but I had a home. I had a place to go back to and to, to land in that was comfortable and had amenities. And it was all through the generosity of other people. That's beautiful. I think, um, with my experience of, you know, how do I know Jesus is, is real, um, is, is a little bit more similar on Eric's story. Um, I've experienced Jesus, you know, in moments of my life, but never one that um, stuck. 
and transformed my life. So I think there's maybe different levels, so to say, or phases that you would um, believe in Jesus or more so, you know, strive to be like Jesus and connect with Jesus. Um, and so September, you know, just changed my whole life and not just, you know, our marriage and our relationship, but, um, it caused so much anxiety, uh, in my job where I already had so much anxiety and feeling like, what am I doing? You know, looking for that sign, but at the same time for me, feeling like I have to provide for my family and the uncomfortableness and the, and, uh, just, I don't know, just torture <laughs> go every day to meet a meaningless job, you know, where your gifts and talents aren't, they, they don't care. <laughs> so like to be, to lose that job and kind of have things taken out from under me. And at the same time to have the chance to take a breath and, and just stop from my job and, you know, the kids, um, I was able to really address some of the, the problems that I was having that was caused by life, but I wasn't able to take that opportunity that God was calling me for until I could heal some of this pain. Um, you know, pain of failure, pain of anger, uh, just different things that I had, had gone through. So, um, yeah, losing my job and then dealing with the anxiety and just untangling it from every aspect of my life. And I'm continuing to do that, but because I have been able to take out a lot of this anxiety and replace it with my faith and with Jesus, um, I feel like a totally different person. Like I'm able to, um, serve the, the children's ministry. I'm able to sing with Brayden and I, I could never do those things a couple of years ago because I was too depressed, too anxious, um, barely able to put my own oxygen mask on. How could I, mm. you know, serve the calling that, well, you really should be serving the church and you should really be doing this or, you know, but to feel it here and to have the opportunity, which Eric gave that gift to just do the thing. And you guys are also using your gifts and what John and I both take a lot of comfort and joy in is that God's church isn't going to disappear. Mm -hmm. Denominations come and go. Mm -hmm. But the church that Jesus vivifies, vivifies means to pour life into, is always going to be here. And so John mentioned this earlier, how excited he was when you two were talking about people coming over to your home and you two having deep spiritual conversations with people who have gone through very similar things that you do. Mm -hmm. And you get to use that gift. You, you get to use your experiences and, and 
and invite people into a conversation about Jesus. Right. Oh, that's so cool. You know, young right. people being willing to share their experiences of God and, and Christ in their lives. Anything else you'd like to add about that? Just that about, you know, inviting people over. We hadn't really done that before because we were still kind of attached to the, um, you know, the traditional religion, religion and faith that you don't talk about that stuff. If people aren't comfortable, you don't talk about it. If they don't go to church or they left the church, you don't talk about it, you know? And so for us to feel that healing in our life and to feel the joy and want to just share it with other people, to be able to be vulnerable and talk about it. And then, you know, the response you get from them when you actually have an open conversation is, it's amazing. It's definitely uh, a faith experience. Mm -hmm. And those conversations, coming back to experiencing Jesus through the generosity of others, those, those conversations always take place on our couch. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, when I moved into that house in Trumbull, it was, I had a couch that my mom bought for me. And then after I moved out of that house, I was going into a like college dorm situation. So I didn't have room for a couch. So I, we had room to store it at the farm. And then, well, that couch got commandeered by my brothers. Uh, so I didn't have a couch again. And so then Liz and I are moving into our first apartment together. And another couple from the congregation donates this lazy boy double recliner couch to us that we had in our first apartment. Mm -hmm. And how many conversations have we had on those on that couch with just between the two of us or between us and some friends that have come over. And then, you know, we move up here to South Sioux and that couch comes with us and we have more conversations with more friends and new people. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, life progresses and we had, we were lucky enough to be able to buy a house. And then we had, two living spaces that needed couches. And so my aunt gave us a couch to have in our upstairs. Well, it was gonna be our downstairs couch, but it didn't fit uh, down in the basement. So it ended up being our upstairs couch and the recliner went downstairs. And so again, we had two hand, you call them hand-me-downs, but they were donated, gifted, generous couches. From that, your aunts. That, yeah, when it was time to replace the lazy boy, my another one of my aunts had a couch that she was, looking to get rid of but it was it was a, still in good shape and we liked it and so she just gave it to us and it was in our basement these couches that have come from all these different people in different places and now we're we're in a place that we can afford our own couch and so we this year we got our own new couch and we've had more conversations it's huge and like it fits yeah, everybody and, and so it's like we, we experienced jesus through people on our couches mm -hmm. that we were gifted through the generosity of other people because Jesus taught them to be generous. And it's like uh, our friend Zach would say, the circle goes round. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so cool. What you guys are exploring or sharing is the ability to see Jesus when others can't. Mm -hmm. The understanding where Jesus is, how to look for Jesus in the gifts and generosity of other people, in the love of other people, in these beautiful experiences that some people might just say, yeah, coincidence. Mm -hmm. But when these coincidences happen over and over and over again, you start to say, well, you know, Jesus says, if you follow me, you should experience this. 
and I'm following, I'm trying to follow Jesus. And we definitely have to work at that, right? We never, we never do it very, very even close to perfectly, but I think Jesus loves the fact that we're trying mm -hmm. and gives us these little gifts of encouragement. We had talked about the, the idea of the light of Christ is all around us for those who have learned to see. And just because somebody says, well, I can't see Jesus, well, it doesn't mean that Jesus isn't there. And Braden, you were, last week we were talking about, you gave a great example of a, a violin player. Mm -hmm. You want to share that? Yeah. Um, so I had heard a story several years ago about um, a violin player. His name is Joshua Bell, who he is a world-renowned vi violin player, like child prodigy type. And in, in 2007, he decided that he would go busking in, at a metro station, a, a train station in Washington. And uh, so he goes down and he starts playing whatever he starts playing. But, it, you know, as a child prodigy, world famous violinist. So it's amazing. And there are statistics that come with this story that I didn't have when I was sharing it with you guys last week. Um, but I found them. On that day, he played in front of 1,097 people. One, over 1,000 people walked by him that day. This world famous violinist. 27 people gave him money. Seven people actually stood there and listened for any amount of time. At the end of the day, he walked away with $52.17. $20 of that came from the only person who recognized him. Oh, wow. <clears throat> so being able to slow down and recognize the beauty in the unexpected places, you may have a professional violinist busking in a subway station. And we just walk right by it because we're in a hurry to catch the train. That is one of the great themes of the Bible as well, that Jesus came to open our eyes so that we could see. And we tear through our lives at, at record pace with blinders on, running as fast as we can to get to the next thing. And Brain, you just hit on maybe the secret of life is paying attention to the moment. Looking for <laughs> the, the speed limit on the highways in Nebraska in I think the last two years, two or three years, I think, was raised by five miles an hour. It used to be 60 mile an hour on the highways and now in all the state highways, it's, it's 65. I, in Iowa, a lot of the, the state highways, the speed limit is 55. We just want to go faster and faster and faster and get to the next place faster and faster and faster. But dang it, going 65 mile an hour how, down the highway, how many flowers do we drive by? Oh, yeah. 
or your, I mean, with, with us, I can't tell you if I had a dollar for every time someone told me, oh, they're going to grow up so fast. You know, you're going to miss it. You blink your eye. I'd be a millionaire, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, and, uh, at the same, and so we, now we try to soak up all that time, every moment that we're with them. It's not hurry up, get your PJs on. Let's go do this, do that. It's, oh, let's talk to them and experience this with them. And that has also been life-changing. So, um, yeah, even just slowing down and, and your child, you know, addressing anxiety on their own or talking about the children's lesson that you <laughs> made a video for and, and, and giving the main point of that one, just little things. So in America, we worship pastimes. Mm-hmm activities that we call pastimes because they help us pass the time. A football game, a baseball game, a video game. Because to to stop and slow down and pay attention to the things around us, oh, that's boring. But how much are we missing because we're just passing the time? Mm -hmm. Six pack of beer in a football game or spending time outside, spending time on the couch with friends, with the TV off. How can I find Christ if I'm not looking for him? How can I experience Jesus if I'm not trying to follow him? You know, those are the questions. So here's a story from the cosmic love of Christ, the chapter of the cosmic love of Christ, chapter 12, page 49. In John's book. In John's book, the... Enter into my rest of the mysteries of living and dying revealed. And John, at this time, John, I imagine that you are seeking Christ. You're going to a retreat center that was created by Edgar Cayce. Edgar Cayce is a man who had similar gifts that John has. He experienced Christ visibly and received revelations from God. And many people called him a heretic and a magician, and evil, and filled with Satan, a demon-possessed man, and Edgar Casey just kept doing his thing, and he built a retreat center for people that slowed down, opened their eyes, and listened to him, and John and some friends went to this retreat center. He says, we resumed our journey on the beach, arriving late in the afternoon, and set up camp among the persimmon trees, uh, right on the Chesapeake Bay. Oh, Wow, I want to be there, John. (laughs) We were exhausted, so we retired early. The next morning, we went straight to the association headquarters, and without hesitation, right up to the meditation room. I sat down in the row closest to the window in order to enjoy the view of the Atlantic Ocean. It had been 16 years since I had seen it. I closed my eyes to meditate. Immediately, I was filled with light, first black, then red, then yellow, then white. Edgar Cayce spoke. There is someone who wants to meet you. Immediately, every cell of my being was saturated with unadulterated love of God as Jesus and Mary entered. They remained silent in that space, simply allowing me to experience the totality of their love. Although they were invisible in that light, I could feel their holy presence. I was speechless. For a few short moments, I sat there enjoying the love of God, and then it was gone. 
From the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It is not a metaphor. Imagine every cell of your body self-aware of God's pure and incomparable love. Imagine knowing only that love that you have been invited to enjoy. And now, imagine that light withdrawing and leaving. It would have been better if you had not let me taste that beauty, John writes. No human love has ever held a candle to that. Mm. John, would you like to fill in the blanks on that for us? Mm. There's actually a lot that I could say about it. Um, one of the more interesting aspects, because I have been given a mystical path, every experience, every peak moment is full of information that only in retrospect do I ever get. When I was taken through the different colors of light, I was actually given, as it were, the colors of my four earthly directions, northeast, south, and west, in the order of west, north, east, south. That I would not have known for years and years and years. Um, but that was one of the things that was given to me. The other thing was the quality of the love. There is, there have been moments since that experience that I have actually experienced human relationships of the quality of love that I experienced then. It is every cell in my body. It was as if every single cell in my body or every single photon of my being were self-aware of nothing but love. There was nothing else just in um, the presence of love, God's nature. And I was there in that light for about a minute. I had not expected it. I had not prepared for it. You know, it's, it, my life is such that I don't go into things with a conscious intention of saying, oh, I'm going to go experience God's love today. It just happened. And that was the first time that Edgar Casey appeared to me in any fashion. It was not the first time Jesus and Mary. It might have been the first time that Mary had been a part of the equation. Um, in the first book, when I started writing this book, meaning in 2007, in the first version of the book, I had not included these stories because I tried to sanitize it primarily for my Protestant friends and my Protestant peers, because of course, Mary doesn't belong in there. Edgar Casey certainly doesn't belong in there. Mysticism doesn't belong in there. Gifts don't belong in there, etc. And I'm not trying to um, dismiss Protestantism, but that was my goal, was to try to make it palatable to people 
in a way where they would actually hear the stories that I did share rather than reject the stories that now survive in the book. I've had numerous people tell me how grateful that they are I have included the stories and given an unsanitized version, I myself in my heart feel, number one, that it's a lot more authentic, and number two, that I'm a lot more transparent. And it's a whole lot easier just to talk and be completely genuine rather than having to guard my words or, you know, choose let's say politically correct vocabulary or what have you. So originally that story was not in the book in that fashion. Um, once that love was removed, I realized how much work I had because I had no experiential concept of God's love. And I'm still learning about that. How old were you? That happened when I was um, just 25 years old. So you were not necessarily the cleanest of human beings at that time, as far as your, your, uh, your attempts to follow Jesus, your attempts to be in right relationship with God. I would imagine from what you've talked about needing forgiveness of your teens and early 20s, there were, uh, this was not something that you deserved, I guess is what I'm saying. It's certainly not merited. Um, I was running actively and intentionally 180 degrees in the other direction. And uh, it was, uh, it's been very sobering been very very sobering let's put it that way so i hope everybody who's listening who feels the anxiety the depression the frustration that we've all been talking about and sharing this morning that they'll also take away hope from this conversation and recognize that god is here the risen Christ, the, the ever-present, alive Christ is with us. And part of what Jesus would like us to do is learn how to see. And there are no rules, really. Well, this is not, that, that's you know, probably Go ahead, John. May I, may I say something? What yeah. you just said? You know, when I was listening to all of your stories, it was really, really heartening. And... A lot of people think because I've had that kind of experience that somehow I'm special and I'm not. Um, God chooses all of us for his purpose. And, you know, I struggle to try to keep up with the things that are given to me because every day is kind of like a shocker, but everybody has a purpose whether he or she is conscious of it. Um, so when we were talking before we started recording this episode, there is an event in the book where one of my dearest friend's sons committed suicide. 
and the Lord, for his own reasons, restored that young man to complete health. But for me, one of the most important takeaways is here we have me, you know, a past drug user, a sexual uh, addict, let's use that word, that's kind of safe, um, impoverished, uh, iconoclast, disrespectful, irreverent human being. We have, you know, people who've been in jail and so on. All of us were there praying at this moment where the miracle was performed. And God's purpose was fulfilled through all of those lives, which is not to say, go out and sin your eyes out. That's not the point. This, the point of the story is we don't know where we are in God's plan for our lives at any time. Um, all of our lives are equally valid in the process of God manifesting his reality on earth. And right now, the world is in a bad way. But I always remember Jesus' prophecy. You know, you will, there will be wars and you will hear rumors of wars and there will be droughts and there will be plagues and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, he says, these things must happen. So there's a story behind this story that we have not seen yet that will be for God's glory. And I'm constantly thinking about Joseph. And Liz, when you were talking earlier about being in a job um, situation that was certainly not ideal, I think about Joseph all the time, sold into slavery and arrested falsely, etc. And he recognized God's hand in all of it. Um, I don't know how he would have discerned that, but he did. And that's true for all of us, no matter what our lives look like on the outside. I have a dear friend, you know, I love the story about the sofas, uh, the couches, if you will, because the couch that I have right now was bought by Eric's brother and his wife decades ago and given to Eric and Brenda. And Eric and Brenda gave it to Eric's mom and my dad who gave it to me. So I have a couch here with so many memories and mm -hmm. so much family in there. But most recently, one of its uses was as a place for a friend who was homeless at the time to crash. He slept on that sofa. And the time of me meeting him, he had lost somebody through death and he was devastated. And I reached out to him and we became friends, but he's a very, very young man and he does everything that young people do. And, you know, sometimes I go, whoa, God, what have you done? You know, who is this guy? And of course I see myself as a 18, 19, 20, 21 year old living out the life that I lived. And I go, it's no wonder my dad had worries about me. 
because this young man is struggling. But the other day he came up to me. So it's been like maybe four or five years now. He came up to me and he said, yeah, God is really good. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> those conversations paid off. And I was really, really deeply touched that through all of this, um, this young man is actually on a good path going forward in his life. It's and hard so, sometimes to see. Thanks for sharing that, John. That is, <laughs> I, and I like your, 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 uh, what's the right word? Admonition that just don't go out and sin just to, because there are no rules. What, what Jesus is inviting us to do is to move from that place of brokenness where we're really self-centered and the decisions we make are all based upon what we want and what we desire. And the path to experiencing Jesus on a regular basis is moving to becoming God-centered in which our decisions are centered on the needs of other people, letting those people crash on the couch perhaps as a way to begin a conversation. Uh, to lighten the mood up a little bit, though, for those who say, I, uh, yeah, I hear what you guys are saying, but I just can't believe it. Well, just because you can't believe it doesn't mean it's not true. This is a story called Calling Down the Aliens, page 45. A few days and 400 miles later, same residence. One time, while walking from the parking lot at the 1983 Michigan Rainbow Gathering, my friend and I met a couple of men struggling to heave a Steinway piano up the ancient mountain to the prayer circle at the top. <laughs> it would have been challenging enough had there been a paved road or even a gravel road, but there wasn't. And Braden's smiling as he plays a piano and he knows how much <laughs> they weigh. I've moved a couple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so not an easy thing. Or, or even remotely fun. No. No, they had to haul the ungainly <laughs> burden over rocks and boulders and over soil, well-trodden by thousands of hippies, seekers, Indians, Hindus, Buddhists, Pentecostals, and tourists who make the gathering, make the gathering a destination every 4th of July. Thoroughly impressed by their ambition, my friend and I expressed marvel at their undertaking. The young man with the long untrimmed beard and mustache turned to us and stated matter-of-factly that they were taking the piano to the site in order to call in the aliens. We both <laughs> now doubly were doubly impressed. Cool! <laughs> they, with their 330-pound burden, climbed that ascent with ease, while we Flatlanders with only four water bottles and, a, with, and snack bars struggled to make it to the top. <laughs> Several minutes later, we noticed a luminous yellow-green elongated ellipsoid in the sky. It was moving horizontally from our left at a very slow pace. And when it was directly over the prayer circle at the top of the mountain, it descended vertically until we could no longer see it because of the trees. I turned to my companion and said, well, they must have made it to the top. <laughs> I love that story. And then on page 47, John has rock art at the astronomical site at Roundy's Crossing with a picture of an alien that God only knows how old it is painted onto the rock. 
And I'm really glad that you think that's a picture of an alien. I appreciate that more than I can tell you. <laughs> and, and, and that's, I'm saying, I think you are probably correct, given the nature of that site and given the nature of that uh, picture. And now we have, oh, and now I'm seeing that there's two aliens there, or maybe more. Uh, and now we have pictures from the Navy and the Air Force that all share images exactly of what John described. So, hey, folks, you don't believe our experiences with Jesus? They're not real? <laughs> Doesn't mean that Jesus isn't real. One of the reasons that I wrote chapter 14 in the book, Trust Your Own Experience, is because I've had experiences that most people would not even imagine. And I've either had to trust them or I've had to commit myself. I mean, that was really the choice. And I knew what I experienced and it was shared experience. You know, it wasn't something, and it's like, okay, I know what I just saw. And, you know, I've never not believed in aliens. The, one of my favorite movies as a child, we watched yearly because they would play it every year was the day the earth stood still. And I loved it. I always have. Not the modern version, obviously. <laughs> well, with that story and those thoughts, we will draw this episode to a conclusion and uh, thank all of our listeners for tuning in. We will continue this conversation with episode two next week. And we hope you join us again for more fun stories, a little laughter, and some conversations about hearing God say go. And with that, it's time for us to go. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening to part one of this episode. We hope these podcasts have added meaning to your life in one way or another. If you'd like to submit questions for the group to ponder, or if you've got questions about John's book, send them to techstpaulssc at gmail.com. That's T-E-C-H-S-T-P-A-U-L-S-S-C at gmail.com. And we'll get back to you with something. Uh, it might be an answer. It might be another question. Next week, we'll have part two of this conversation on how we know Jesus is real. John shares with us a discipline from his life for reconciliation, and we explore the lyrics of a very popular song. Have a great week, everyone.